Hey, good morning, North Boulevard. Yeah, great. Here in person, East Campus, those of you online, we are so happy to be together today. West Campus, they're going to be having uh, David Hunziker's preach today. He's preaching about friendship. I'm so proud of David. He grew up under my preaching. I jokingly say, I'm just so happy he believes in Jesus. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man, what a, what a great church. What a wonderful church family that we have. Uh, hey, by the way, I want to say, if you have not heard the sermon from Dr. David Young last week on why Jesus died, please go online and listen to that sermon. I'm telling you, over 40 years of ministry, that is one of maybe the best Christian sermon I've ever heard. That was awesome. So go back on there. Do like me. I heard it. I'm going back and listening to it again uh, because it was that great. And then, hey, since last Sunday, uh, David has developed some negative side effects from his cancer treatment. And then this weekend, he tests positive for COVID. Uh, His symptoms have been difficult this week, but he is slowly improving. And he fully intends to be back in the pulpit next Sunday. And I think he's going to preach about the resurrection. And so, hey... uh, David and Julie want to thank all of you so much for your love and for your prayer. So uh, let's keep them lifted up in prayer this week. Uh, But today you get me. If you don't know me, I'm Tony Holt. I'm Minister of Church Life. I do most of my work here from East Campus. And uh, today you're going to get what we call a one in, uh, a one-off sermon, okay? I think the reason we call them one-offs is because we preach it once and turn the thing off. Uh, but today uh, I want to encourage us. I want to inspire us. I hear the voice of my brother David in the back of my mind when I'm preaching. And he says, let's don't back down. Don't back up. Keep our foot on the gas. Let's keep doing it. Let's make disciples and let's plant churches in the name of Jesus here, near, and far. Let's keep going with it, brothers and sisters. Uh, and just, and just, I, I've never had more fun in my life. How about you, Jim? I tell you what, I've never had it so good to be a part of a church family that cares about making disciples and planting churches. That's a great thing. Happy to be a part of this. And so, let's talk about it just a little bit this morning. In Matthew chapter 4 and verse 19, Jesus said, Come follow me and I'll make you what? Say it with me. Fishers of men. That's right. Fishers of men. I find it interesting that Jesus did not say, Come follow me and I'll show you all of your inadequacies and how unworthy you are. And what you're not know, Jesus said, Come follow me and I'll show you what you can become. You can become fishers of men. And he held that standard up so high for us. So this morning, let's draw some thoughts from this figure of speech. Fishers of men. Now, if we're going to fish for lost people, well, Stan say we've got to have a place to fish, right? Greatest fish are always found in the ocean, in the sea. The greatest fishermen go out to sea. The greatest number of fish are brought back from the sea. Now, where do we fish? We fish in the sea of life. In Matthew 28, 19, he said, Go make disciples of the nations. In Mark chapter 16 and verse 15, he said, Go preach the gospel of Jesus to everyone. In Revelation chapter 22 and verse 17, the spirit and the bride say, Come, let he that hears come, let he that is a thirst come, let whosoever will come and take freely from the fountains of the waters of life so that they can be saved from King, by King Jesus. And so we want to keep that foot on the gas 
because there are none too great for our tackle or for our equipment. In the 26th chapter of the book of Acts, Paul is preaching. They thought he was on trial. They had him there for an interrogation. Paul turned that judgment seat into a pulpit. He went looking for the king. And in verse 27, he said, Oh, King Agrippa, I can only imagine the risk of saying that. And then, oh, King Agrippa, he said, do you believe the prophets? He's already got the man. He's already entangled him with his beliefs. And then he says, I know you believe. Now, Agrippa jumped out of the net. God's not going to keep anyone in that net who's just deliberate. They're not going to be there, don't want to be there. But the point is, Paul had been fishing with a golden net of the gospel. And he was not intimidated by the fact this man was both his king and his judge. About a year or so later, Paul is fishing again. Probably thousands have come to faith in Jesus through what the Holy Spirit was doing through Paul by that time. This time, he casts out that gospel net and he drags it in and he finds a little fish called Onesimus. He's a slave. But Paul didn't throw him back. No, there's an entire letter in the New Testament written about him. We call it Philemon. It's primarily about the slave whose name Onesimus. And so there is no one too big that they intimidate us. No one so small that they should slip through the meshes of the net. All is just needed is being a human being who is given life in the likeness of God. And let's invite them all. So there's a sea and there's a sea of life and we reach for everyone, right? But then there is our teacher, Good fishermen need a teacher. When I was a little boy, I come from a sharecropping family, and my family lived on a dirt road, and it was located just between lost and nowhere. And I was told that there was a neighbor up the dirt road where we lived, and I went and met my neighbor. His name was Russell Foley. And Russell was a man who taught me a little bit about fishing. Now, I can give you some details about it because what we did then was we, did, we fished with baskets. And uh, I'll tell you about it. Don't go do it because it's illegal today. <laughs> but when you live between lost and nowhere, who knows what's legal and illegal whether there. All we knew, there, there was catfish in the river and we wanted to get some. So my dad had chicken wire laying around. So we went and got the chicken wire and we made funnels and big long things of chicken wire. You know, we'd seal it off on one end, make a funnel on the other. We'd throw cornbread. Mr. Foley's son was a local butcher, so he would bring us some leftover salmon from time to time and we'd throw that in there. And then we had some clothesline wire. Now, I know we've all forgotten what that is, but between lost and nowhere, you know, 50 years ago, people didn't have dryers. They hung their clothes outside to dry. You know, there's a few people that remember that, and if you're younger, then please go research it and see what that was kind of about. And we take that line and we would tie it to the basket and then we take the other end, we go down, I mean we put the baskets in the back of his old pickup truck and we go down to the river and we get out and we tie, you know, that clothesline wire on there and we throw the basket with the bait in it over into the water and we tie it off and then we just leave it. 
You know, we leave it and come back two days later. We put it in, say, this morning, and then we go back Tuesday morning and check it. It was always full of catfish when we went back. It's all you could do to just pull the thing out of the water and it'd take both of us carry it back to the truck. And we'd have about four baskets of those every two days. And so then he'd get on the party line phone. If you're young people, look that up. That's another interesting piece of research. And he'd get on the party line phone and call a neighbor up the road and he'd say, hey, you come Saturday night and you bring the hush puppies. And then they'd call another and say, hey, you come and you bring the slaw. And so the neighbors would meet down at Mr. Foley's on Saturday night. I mean, we'd have a fish fry like you've never... He'd skin the fish. Oh, man, that was so much fun. And then I grew up. And I lost all that fun. And I didn't do a thing about fishing again until I was much older. I'd moved here and it was in the late 90s and I met my friend Scott. Now Scott grew up fishing around here. He grew up in Murfreesboro. His dad Mac and Bubba Whitman were really good friends and they fished a lot together and then they had these other two men, Mr. Arnett and Mr. Rushing, and they'd all go and they'd go fishing. They loved fishing, and Scott was just learning all he could. And he said, little brother, I want you to go fishing with me. And I said, well, okay, uh, I suppose you have to have a license or something for that. And he said, yes, and so I went and got me one. And I was waiting, and I'm telling you, talking about having it made. He'd come by in the Tahoe, and he'd have that big bass boat behind him, you know. And he'd get me in, and just put me in a Tahoe, and we'd drive out to the lake. And I fished every lake around here. We fished Old Hickory. We, I mean, we fished land between the lakes. We went to Smithville. We went to Gunnersville down there. We fished all around. And all I had to do was just ride and fish. I mean, I'd get to the place where we were going to fish. I'd get out of the Tahoe. I'd go walk up and get onto the boat. And then Scott put the boat in the water with us, and then we'd go. And he'd open up a, this container and pull out this rod and reel and say, here, we're going to fish with this today, little brother. And so he'd get there, and he'd say, cast your bait right over here. And I'd be, oh, yeah, like right over there. No, not right over there. Right over there, you know. And then so i cast over there. Gone. And I caught more fish in an afternoon with a rod and reel than I'd caught with a rod and reel my entire life. It was because... I had a good teacher. Well, I'm telling you that Jesus can teach us how to be fishers of lost souls and he can teach us how to impact this generation and the world in which you and I live. And as we've already learned in the last decade of our experience together, we'll not be bound by the borders of Rutherford or Davidson County or the state of Tennessee, but it's the whole world in which we'll fish. And so it's so exciting to see what God is doing here, what he's doing near, what he's doing far in making disciples the King Jesus. You know, I think I might could illustrate this point about teaching a bit further. In the early 80s, I was living in North Alabama, and I was, went to a Bible college there. And the, the president of the school was a man named Charlie Cole, Dr. Cole. And Dr. Charlie had a a neighbor who was named Ganey. And I never met anyone in my life named Ganey, and I hadn't met anyone else named Ganey. Ganey Green. Ganey loved to fish. And so Ganey went fishing, stayed out all night. Well, some fishermen will do that. But Ganey stayed out all the next day. About sundown the second day, Miss Elliot's wife went out to see if he'd drowned or something. And so she found him, and he was holding his pole very carefully. And he was watching the cork so intently 
Well, she walked up and she said, Gainy, Gainy, went, shh, shh, shh. I got a bite there just about this time yesterday. Now, Gainy knew something about patience. Some people probably say Miss Ellie knew something about patience. But the point is, patience, when we're fishing for lost people, we need patience. Well, when I was in school, I had this teacher by the name of Stephen Broyles. We had a class in World Lit on the collegiate level, and we read a lot of things. And he had me read the works of Aristotle. I'm still trying to forgive him. But I learned a lot. I learned that among Aristotle's students, that the best known of his students was a young man named Alexander. And in the year 333, 334 B.C., around that time, Alexander marched out of Macedonia at the head of a confident, conquering army. And with their banners flying in the wind, they marched southward through the Cilician gates on their way to Syria... Egypt, Persia, India, and the known world. And they had a great impact. It was about 387 years later that two men by the names of Paul and Silas marched northward through those Cilician gates that are just in the Tarsus Mountains north of Antioch on their way to Troas, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, Corinth, and the world. Paul and Silas were on a mission of life. Alexander was on a mission of death and destruction. Who had the greatest impact? I dare say that Paul and Silas have had a greater impact for good on this world than Alexander did for good and evil put together. Why? Because they had a better teacher. Because their teacher is Jesus. And the army that they marched through those gates with could not be seen with human eyes, but it was the heavenly army who walked with them through those gates. So there's a place to fish, there's a sea, we reach for everyone, and then there's our teacher, and then, well... There's us folks that's trying to catch the fish, right? The fishermen, the men and women who are trying to reach lost people. We do need to say something for patience because Ganey really did teach us a lot about patience with that. But you know, farmers know something about patience. As I mentioned earlier, I grew up sharecropping with my parents. And they taught me that land could be cleared. They taught me that you can prepare the soil. Rocks can be carried off. Roots and thorns can be dug up. But even still, you have to prepare and till and sow and wait for the rains and watch it mature. It takes a lot of patience to farm, to grow something. And then a fisherman learned to hate the pollutants that would destroy the fish. You know, today we have the Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA, that watches for our streams and our lakes and our ponds to see that they're healthy and that they're good and, and to watch about that. 
But as fishermen of lost souls, we need to learn that there's a thing in the world that's a pollutant called sin. And it's real. And it's not a flag to be waved. It's not a badge to be bragged about. But the fishermen for lost souls must learn that sin is like poison in the bloodstream. It's like a dagger in the heart. It's like cancer to the body. And it's like leprosy to the soul. The fisher for lost people must learn something about that. And we must learn something about the importance of the work that we're doing. You know, I think that one must finally be obsessed. Now, the popular word today is passion. It's a good word. But I choose obsession even though it has that undertone of sadness or badness about it because I'm talking about a magnificent obsession. I'm talking about an obsession that's like a love affair. I'm talking about an obsession that is possessed by one who is harassed by their obsession. That, that's a word that comes to mind me when the person is obsessed. They're just harassed by it. Preoccupied with it by day. Haunted by it in their dreams at night. A person who just can't let it go. That's the kind of obsession Christ's followers need to take the gospel of Jesus to the known world. That's what we need to give. Give it everything. If your child were dying of thirst, what would you do to bring them a drink? If you live 50, 75 miles from here and you learn that a group of people were on their way to your house to kill your family, what would you do to get to them? Could I stop you? I doubt it. I might outweigh a few of you, but I doubt that I could stop you. No, you get away from here. You'd drive as far as you could drive. You'd walk where you had to walk. You'd run as long as there was breath left in your body. If you had to swim the Duck and Stones rivers, you'd swim those rivers. I'm telling you, you'd crawl through barbed wire fences. You'd be chased, shot at. If you had to run over people, you'd run over people. You'd crawl on broken glass to get to your family to say, flee because people's coming to destroy us. That's the kind of obsession I'm talking about of taking the message of Jesus to the world. When I think about this, I think about a story that I came across years ago. It was about a a young man who lived out in the northwest. There was a great storm and a great wreck. He had come from a seafaring family. His father had been lost at sea. An older brother had been away at sea for more than a couple of years. And this young man was all that his mother had left. And so now there was this storm and this wreck. And he was a great physical specimen, a great swimmer, strong. About 18 years of age. And so he knew that when all the meager resources of that little fishing village he belonged to gathered to go down and try to save as many people as they could, that he had to go because he did, there was no one in the village who could handle a boat and oars and who could swim and had the ability to save like he did. And so he went. 
His mother following him as he gone, crying, son, don't go. Please don't go. But he said, Mom, I've got to go. And he took a boat out. He brought back that boat full of survivors. His mom was so thankful and he was turning around and he was going to make a second trip when she said, son, please, please don't go. You're really all that I have left. Don't go. He said, but mom, you know, I've got to go. He took the boat out for a second trip. He came back with a second boat full of survivors. By this time, the sea vessel that had crashed, most of it was underwater. What was left was burning. His mom was standing there just wringing her hands and praising God Almighty. He'd been spared for a second trip. She thought, surely he won't go again. He was already launching his boat. She said, son, what are you doing? He said, mom, I've got to go back. She said, don't go. He said, mom, there was one man left. He was helping other people get onto my boat, but there wasn't room enough for him on ours. He said, I've got to go back. I've got to try to save this man. Just one more. Just let me go. Just let me go. I've got to go. She said, son, please don't go. You're all I have. He said, mom, I've got to go. And he went. About an hour later, the boat reappeared through the fog and the smoke from the vessel that had been on fire. Two men in it, and both her sons were in that boat. The last man he saved was his older brother who'd been away at sea for more than two years. If that young man had not said just one more, then she would have never seen her oldest son in this world again. That's the kind of obsession that we're talking about in reaching the lost world. And it's very important for all of us. You know, there are some things fishing for lost souls we just cannot do by ourselves, can we? It takes community. It takes the full body. You ever go out, some of you deep sea fish, it's a great thing to do. If you hadn't done it, I recommend it. Go do it. Have fun. But when you go out, there are fishing vessels that some of you have been on. They're so large, I'm telling you, one person can't handle that fishing trip by themselves. You better have a good team when you go out to do that. And so we do things together. But then, you know, there are some things in this life that Tony is required to do that the body can't do. Because I can't take the body everywhere with me. And I can't in spirit. But I find myself being in places where I'm not surrounded by all my great family members on North Boulevard when I'm there. And when that happens to me, I remember... Isaiah 6, 8, when Isaiah was in the temple and received the vision from God, and when he responded, of course, he wasn't in the temple by himself, but he didn't say, here are we, God, send us. He said, here am I, send me. I, Tony, have a personal responsibility of making disciples, and every Christ follower does. And I'm convinced with all my heart 
that when I'm obedient, that really helps expand the kingdom. I may not see the outcome, but I need to share with other people who is Jesus and particularly what difference has he made in my life, in my life. I've sat with atheists at tables before and we've swapped data from apologetics from one end of the table to the other. And nine out of ten times, I'll tell you where that'll get you. Absolutely nowhere. But sit and witness to them about the personal difference that Jesus of Nazareth has made as Lord of your life. And there's no one in the world who can dispute it. Because you know it. And so let's share that gospel message with other people collectively and as individuals because I'm convinced that if I don't do it, someone in the eternal kingdom is going to be missing. And I might be there, but it might be my act of disobedience is why they're not there. So I'm going to share it. Why not? Share, share the good news. You know, I think it'd be wonderful to be a surgeon. Some of you are, and we respect you so much. I think it'd be wonderful because just to stand with a sharp scaffold in an operating room and cut away a cancer that threatens a life and to be able to deliver that person back to their family. I mean, wouldn't that be wonderful? Wouldn't that be a wonderful experience to have that? Or I thrill at the thought of being a great attorney, and some of you are great attorneys. And by the skills of my training and the eloquence, concern, compassion, generated over a lifetime, just a whole lifetime of service to humanity, that I could go before a jury for a client who's been falsely accused of a crime and life is hanging in the balance, and to win a verdict of acquittal for them. That would be magnificent, wouldn't it? But in addition, maybe even far greater, to stand at the crossroads of life and turn people from damnation to salvation, from darkness to light, from Satan to Jesus. What a great life. I think it'd be wonderful to be a musician and out of my brain to just create these surging seas of melody. Some of you have that gift and you do it. I think it's a great thing. Or to be a sculptor. Wouldn't it be great to be a sculptor? And I don't know any. I've seen the works of some in Italy. <laughs> but to just think about creating the images of beautiful children from just this stove sterile womb of stone to me that's just magnificent but again in league with the Holy Spirit to share the gospel of Jesus with someone that produces beautiful lives of eternity praise God we can all do it <laughs> we can all do that so where do we begin well you know I've learned this around here my good old buddy David Skidmore, I tell you, if you're around Skid very much, you're going to learn what 2 Timothy 2.2 means. I'm so glad I'd memorized that before I met him. I would have been embarrassed after a five-minute conversation with him. 
Because he's got this everywhere, doesn't he? He said, and the things you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable people who also be qualified to teach others. That's recruiting, isn't it? That's recruiting, that's sharing, that's training. But you know, Jesus even offers her something more basic. You know, he's, Matthew tells us Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. I asked the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Notice Jesus had compassion. I think sharing the good news with people comes first from a heart of compassion. Had the compassion on people. Took me a while to learn compassion. I can remember being a young man and I didn't have compassion for people. I'd see young, arrogant men who were sinners. I'd see them with their money and the evidence of it and, the, and how they drove expensive vehicles at the time and wore expensive clothes. And, and I could see the evidence of all that and the evidences of their sin. It just made me want to grit my teeth. Make me angry. Make me feel indignant. Thank you, King Jesus, for teaching me that the call was to compassion. Oh, what an end for some people who don't know Jesus. We've got a lot of good work ahead of us, brothers and sisters. We're not going to back down. But you know, again, it takes all of us to do many things. So Jesus said, ask. Ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest field. Pray that. Make it a regular part of your prayer life. Ask God to help you do it. I'll tell you a revelation I received, I don't know, close to 10 years ago, if it's not here. When we were doing 2020 vision and David articulated that so well for us and we started and here we go. And remember, we threw that number out there. We're going to plant 60,000 churches. And I confess, I was sitting on a pew right over here, and I'd not heard that number before, and I thought David had lost his mind. Forgive me. Wasn't too long after that, we met a brother named Jerry Trousdale and found out it was already being done. God can do anything. And God can use us to touch this world and help save this world. But let's pray about it. Because I'll tell you, there are times that you're going to go fishing for lost souls. And it might be a little bit like a time when I was a boy and went out into a field with a small tackle box on a Zebco 202. man told me I could fish there. He didn't tell me about the uh, black Angus bull that was on the farm. <laughs> we met. He won. I'm happy to be alive. But I remember this story from the 1960s on that point when you feel like you just got a little old rod and reel and what are you going to do? When I reminded this preacher left his office early on a Friday afternoon. He got into his car, he began riding in that car. He was traveling across a Pontchartrain bridge. Some of you have been across that bridge before, 18-mile bridge and causeway down in Louisiana, one of, if not still, the longest in the world. He's traveling across that bridge, and 
Oh, he's got the air conditioning on. He's so relaxed. He's protected from the Louisiana humidity. He's got it all going on. And then he looks down the bridge, and he sees this fellow crawl up over the side of the bridge. And he thought, what kind of nut is that? He must be a crazy man. I know what's going to happen. I'll get down there, and he'll want to sell me the bridge. Well, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to pull right in there, right up to him, just like I'm going to stop. But just before I come to a complete stop, I'm going to cut my wheel to the right. I'm going to accelerate my big Detroit engine, and I'm going to go around him and be on enjoying this day before he knows what happens. And so he came into plan, and the man got in front of him flagging his coat, and he turned the wheel to the right, and he hit the gasoline. And to his surprise, the man just lunged in front of him. And so then he started shouting things he probably shouldn't have said, and then he cut the wheel the other way, and the man just jumped in front of him again. And so he thought, well, I'll get out, I'll get out the first word. So he stopped me, got out of the car, and said, what do you mean stopping me on this beautiful day? And he said, sir, 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 don't you know? The bridge is out. A barge has hit the bridge. There are cars over that are down. A Greyhound bus went over. Can't you hear the screams for help? I crawled up the side of the bridge to get help. The bridge is out. And the preacher said, I took off my coat. I started flagging down traffic. Remember, do your part flagging down the traffic. Let's sing.